Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. So goes the familiar Sunday school song. These are some of the very first lines of Christian theology that many of us pick up who were raised in church. But it can take a lifetime for this central claim of our belovedness, totally and completely adopted, forgiven, saved, and loved by God to make the 12-inch journey from our head to our heart. This central truth of Christianity, that we are more sinful and flawed than we dare to believe, yet at the same time, more loved and accepted than we could ever imagine is something that we cannot escape. Jesus loves you. This do you know. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, the great Apostle Paul paints a picture of inexhaustible, irrepressible, and inexpressible love. This love is so great and so grand that the mighty church leader struggles to put pen to parchment as he begins to express what exactly it is to mean Jesus loves you. These sprawling lines serve as the center of Ephesians, sandwiched as they are between chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. If chapters 1 through 3 are the glorious stars of God's inexpressible glory and grace towards us in Christ, chapters 4 through 6 are the gritty and grimy soil of gospel ethics. In between it all, we find a passionate prayer to be rooted and grounded in love. Uh, These verses move us from doctrine to duty, from principles to practicalities, from right belief to right behavior. And rather than giving us a classroom lecture or a motivational speech on love, the mighty Apostle Paul gets down on his knees before the Father, and I think we should too. If you have the ability, would you please clear the way in your aisle to the best that you can and join me down on your knees in prayer before God the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for today. Thank you for the gift of inexpressible, inexhaustible love in your Son. The only proper cry of our heart this morning is thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for bringing us from death to life so that we could reign with you. Lord, we love you. Our hearts are open. Our minds are receptive to your words. Speak to us now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 You may be seated. This morning. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 is the second prayer in the book of Ephesians. The first prayer Josh preached on a few weeks ago in chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, there God asked that the eyes of the believers would be open to the hope, the inheritance, and the power that is now theirs in Christ. 
all of chapter two would go on to unpack what exactly it means when we say we are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Verses one through 10 of chapter two talk about how we were dead, we've been made alive, and now, right now, presently, currently, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. We've been displayed and deployed for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Chapter 2 also goes on to talk about the call to ethnic unity in the church because the vertical beam of the gospel has been restored between us and the Father. Now the horizontal beam has been restored as well. God has moved us into right relationship with him. And so now black people, white people, rich people, poor people, young people, and even old people have been and can be rejoined to the family of God. Chapter 3, 1 through 13 describes how Gentiles are now co-heirs and co-participators in God's glorious plan of renewal. Through the multi-ethnic church, the multi-faceted wisdom of God is preached to the powers and the principalities. A wisdom better than the competing philosophies of this age has showed up on the scene, and his name is Jesus. After recounting all of this, my brother Paul just can't help himself. He has to get himself a praise break. And in doing so, he goes on another one of his infamous run-on sentences. And as he does, he confronts us and his original readers with a question that I believe God wants to ask us today. Are you running over or are you running on empty? Running over or running on empty? This is the title of my message this morning, and three scenes or three movements will help unpack what Paul means when he asks this question. First, in verses 14 through 15, we'll see how Paul prays. Secondly, in verses 16 through 19, we'll see what Paul prays. And lastly, in verses 20 through 21, we'll see to whom Paul prays. How Paul prays what Paul prays, and to whom Paul prays. First, how Paul prays. Look down with me if you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope that you do. Get to bring your Bibles and take notes in church. Verses 14 through 15 says this, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This is how Paul begins his prayer, and what a scene it is. I mean, just imagine with me for a moment, the Apostle Paul, with just a few years left to live, an old man now, stooped down on hands and knees, begging and pleading before the Father that these young Ephesian believers would know, be running over with the boundless love of God. Almost a decade earlier, he ministered to these men and women in Ephesus. You can read that in the book of Acts. And now he's trapped under lock and key in house arrest in Rome, nearly 1,200 miles away in the slums of an ancient city. Now, if I were Paul, I would have given up at this point, thrown in the towel, figured, what is the point? I've done so much, faced so much opposition and persecution. I've written Romans. I've fought with the Jewish leaders. I've been pummeled by stones and shipwrecked at sea. What difference will one more letter make? And so we have to ask this morning, what exactly is it that moves Paul to pray? And not just to pray, but to do intercessory prayer. I don't know about you, but when I grew up in church, intercessory prayer was like the next level of Christian spirituality. It was reserved for the Holy Ghost elite. 
the prayer warriors. Come on, you know what I'm talking about? The old heads who knew how to call down fire and cast out demons. Shekinah glory. Our intercessory prayer, though, sometimes was uh, more reserved for what could happen than what should happen. Uh, You know what I mean? We prayed more about pandemics and natural disasters and presidential elections and college football championships, Uh, all great things to pray for, by the way. But I think maybe sometimes, not all the time, but if we weren't careful, we would find ourselves more focused on pandemics than people, more focused on presidents than perseverance, hurricanes than holiness, but not Paul. On behalf of others and with humility before God, he imparts, prays into existence, a preferred future for these believers' lives. Can you imagine how humbling it must have been to know that someone was praying that way for you? I wonder, have you ever prayed this way for someone else? Gotten down on your hands and knees? Because this is intercessory prayer at its finest. In his prayer, Paul addresses God as the father of heaven and earth. Some modern readers may find offense at this. Uh, How in the world could Paul call God father? I mean, how patriarchal and archaic can you get? Isn't God beyond gender? And surely God cannot be summed up with male or female. He is so much more grand and glorious than that. But uh, the good news for us today with less than stellar dads a.k.a. all of us in the room, is that God is not like earthly men. He's much better than them. In fact, the phrase, father from whom every family is named, refers not so much to a male parent as it does to lineage, legacy, uh, the headship of a clan, a tribe, a family, even a nation. So because God is the source of all life, he is therefore also the source, the single point of origin for every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. This is good news today because no one group, Jew or Gentile, can claim sole access to the Father. All of us, through Christ, now can approach the King of all kings. So much so that every tribe from Asia, Africa, North and South America, Australia, heck, even Antarctica, we can approach the one true tribe because of the one true king. And this blows Paul's mind. So much so that he gets down on his knees before the Father because he knows one day every tongue, every tribe, and every nation will get down on theirs. How Paul prays is important, but what Paul prays is indescribable. In verses 16 through 19, we read that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Everybody say rooted and grounded. grounded. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In these four verses, Paul prays three things, and we'll spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking them one by one. Uh, First, Paul prays that God would give them strength. Secondly, he prays that they would grasp and know Christ's love. Thirdly, he prays that they would be filled with God's presence. Strength, love, and presence. 
My claim this morning is that that last one, presence, is the most important of all. It is the one that Paul is driving at again and again through the logic and the argument of these verses. And if you miss the presence, you miss the prayer. But note first the intense Trinitarian language in these verses. Uh, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father. I do it so that you would be strengthened through the Spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is a mystery to be sure, but it's a thoroughly biblical one. One God, three persons. This three and one God and no other God will answer Paul's prayer according to the riches of his glory. Come on, as the young folks say, God's bag is deep, yo. He got it like that. He's good for it. And Paul wants this God to strengthen them by his power so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Uh, This word for dwell is an interesting one because it's not talking about, you know, just checking into an Airbnb for the weekend. It's not talking about a camping trip or hostel hopping. It's talking about Christ taking up permanent residence in our hearts. He wants to sign a lifetime lease. The God of the universe wants to make your heart his home. This image behind me was released last month, and many of you have maybe seen this before. It's the edge of a nearby young star-forming region in the Carina Nebula. It's called the Cosmic Cliffs. What a great name. Looks pretty similar to some of our mountains here in Colorado. Uh, But this image was captured by the Webb Telescope, which itself is located one million miles away from Earth. Uh, The actual star cluster before you is 7,500 light years away. A light year is 6 trillion miles, by the way, just in case it's been a minute since Earth science class. And the tallest peak in this photo is 75, or I'm sorry, 7 light years high. 7 light years high. So multiply that times, you know, I I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. (laughs) Now, before this turns into a Louis Giglio sermon... um, that's for all you who've been in church for a while. Uh, this blows my mind because the same God who made this lives in you. Amen. Throughout Ephesians, Paul speaks of us being in Christ. But now in verses 14 through 21, he talks about Christ being in us. Yes. What a marvel. What a wonder. And it's no wonder that Paul begs and pleads for us to have strength to even comprehend this marvelous truth. Uh, Paul uses an interesting analogy here to help us grasp what's going on. He talks about us being rooted and grounded in love. It's basically the idea of a tree and a house. This phrase is interesting because it's not clear whether Paul is saying, because you've been rooted and grounded in love. In other words, you being rooted and grounded in love is the source or the basis of you grasping God's love. Or if he's saying, through being rooted and grounded in love. In in other words, it's through uh, this instrument of knowledge that you're going to grasp God's love. Uh, Either way, the point is clear that love is to be both the soil and the foundation of our lives. In the first week of this series, Jason said, God has redeemed us to be the church, a community of love for his glory. That's all of Ephesians in a single sentence. In order for us to become love, Providence, we can only do it in community. 
there is no such thing as solo spirituality in the Christian life. Only in the context of Christian community is love grasped. Only along with all the saints can we possibly comprehend the breadth, the width, the length, the height of God's love. Uh, one more Bible nerd nugget. Uh, this fourfold phrase, breadth, length, width, height, is interesting too. Uh, scholars are divided on whether it refers to God's power, God's wisdom, or God's love. I think a case could be made for all three, but either way you slice it, it, it seems that Paul has the mystery of God's love at the forefront of his mind. One way that may be helpful to think about height, length, width, and depth is in terms of time. I want you to think just for a minute about your own personal life. Being born, learning how to talk and walk, going through puberty. Mm, help us, Lord. Getting your driver's license, maybe you know, graduating college, maybe getting married, maybe having kids, losing a loved one. I turned 28 last week, and all throughout those 28 years of Hunter Hambrick's life, God has been faithful. Exceedingly so. Now I want you to think about the length of God's love in terms of space. Just keep in your mind's eye maybe some of the places you've traveled, some of the places you've been lucky enough to go. Uh, I have been to Mumbai, India in 2018. That's the furthest east I have been. And I've also been to Portland, Oregon. That's the furthest west I have been. And at least from India to Oregon, God has been faithful to me. When it comes to width and depth, I want you to think about all the emotions you felt. Think about the love and the joy and the sadness and the rage, the bitterness, the depression, the anxiety, the hope, the joy, the goodness that you have felt. And I want you to think about across where you traveled, all the people that you've encountered, every single one of them made in the image of God. Now to go further, I want you to just look around this room. And think about how God has been faithful to each person in our midst. Now multiply that times every church in Denver, every church in Colorado, America, around the globe, and multiply that down through church history, 2,000 years, and you might just begin to get a glimpse of how infinite and faithful God's love is in our lives. This love is limitless, friends. It surpasses knowledge. You can't get to it in your knower. Believe me, you will fail. It has to be experienced, and we need each other to know it. What is Paul saying? Like a complex, interconnected system of tree roots or a house that's built brick by brick, one on top of the other. We need one another to comprehend God's love. Paul asks for strength. He prays for love. And thirdly, Paul prays that we'd be filled with God's presence. I'm throwing a lot at you this morning, so let's just recap where we've been so far. In verse 16, Paul prays that we would be strengthened mightily through God's spirit in our inner being. You can disagree, but I take this basically the same as saying for Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. That's what, that's what he wants. And then the basis of that and the way we get to know God's love is being rooted and grounded. Then his second prayer is that we would be strong enough to grasp and know Christ's love. And then the third one, and I think this is the one that Paul is driving at again and again, is to know the presence of God, to be filled with all the presence of God. Paul's point all along is that he wants God inside of us. 
not just us inside of God. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about being filled with the Spirit. Let me ask you, do you think being filled with all the presence of God, do you think of that as the chief goal of Christianity? Because Paul does. The question before us today isn't, are you a good person, or are you saved, or did you pray a prayer at a Christian camp one time? Good things, which I suggest you do. The question before us this morning is, are you filled? And if so, how filled are you? Are you filled to all the fullness of God? This June, I went on a silent retreat at Sacred Heart in Sedalia, Colorado. Has anybody been to Sacred Heart? We've taken some of our CG leaders up there. Amazing, amazing place. And uh, during that time, I spent 24 hours in total silence. A miracle, really. And uh, except for one hour that I spent with a spiritual director. If you've never heard of a spiritual director before, it's basically a professional counselor for prayer. These are fellow Christians who teach you how to pray. And uh, during my hour-long session, I met with this lady named Pat. The only way I know how to describe Pat is she is like the female version of Bob Goff, if that means anything to you. I mean, she is just like overflowing with joy and warmth and kindness, like, like a loving grandmother who just made you some cookies. And uh, during our time together, Pat posed me a question that's actually pretty similar to the one on the screen behind me. Uh, she said, Hunter, how does God feel about you? With the ink still drying on my seminary diploma, I was eager to tell her a very theoretical answer. And I began to tell her about the love of God, and she cut me off. She said, no, 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 Hunter, I didn't ask how do you think God feels about you. I asked, how does God feel about you? With tears streaming to my eyes, I looked down and said, God pities me. He thinks of me like Martha, always busy but never quite doing enough to gain his approval. Pat looked down at the floor herself, and after what must have been two or three minutes, she made eye contact with me, looked me square in the face, and said, Hunter, if it's condemnation, it's not God. You are loved. And that is the truest thing about you. Friends, if you don't feel particularly spirit-filled this morning, if you're not just beaming and overflowing with the love of God, much like me, you may simply have a wrong view of who God is. African-American author, spoken word artist, and all-around boss of a lady, Jackie Hill Perry, says this, the foundation of our idolatry the sin begetting all others is a specific belief about God. Our perverse sexual ethics, wild tongue, religious superiority, dark thoughts, legalistic posture, mean ways, impatient moods, greedy antics, intellectual arrogance, and rebellious tendencies come out of what we believe about the living God. And I might add to this list our overwhelming sense of shame. We believe these things about God and about ourselves because we haven't actually encountered the Lord of love. Friends, if you feel more angry than centered, more anxious than at rest, more bitter than grateful, I want to tell you, God wants to fill you up this morning. He wants to fill you up to overflow. He wants to strengthen you to know his love experientially, not just head knowledge, heart knowledge to overflow in praise and love to God. 
Catholic writer David Benner in his beautiful book, The Gift of Being Yourself, writes this. This is a, a long quote, so bear with me. God's love for you has nothing to do with your behavior. Neither, neither your faithfulness nor your unfaithfulness alters divine love in the slightest degree. Like the father's love in the parable of the prodigal son, divine love is absolutely unconditional, unlimited, and unimaginably extravagant. Whether we realize it or not, our being is grounded in God's love. The generative love of God is our origin. The embracing love of God sustains our existence. The inextinguishable love of God is the only hope for our fulfillment. Love is our identity and calling. For we are children of love, created from love, of love, and for love. Our existence makes no sense apart from divine love. Neither knowing God nor knowing self can progress very far unless it begins with the knowledge of how deeply we are loved by God. Until we dare to believe that nothing can separate us from God's love, nothing that we could do or fail to do, nor anything that could be done by anyone else to us, we remain in the elementary grades at the school of Christian spiritual transformation. In order for our knowing of God's love to be truly transformational, it must become the basis of our identity. An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. How does God feel about you? Oh, my friend, Jesus loves you. God wants to strengthen us to know his love so we'll be filled to overflow. That's what Paul prays. Lastly, we see to whom Paul prays in verses 20 to 21. He prays to the God who is able to do far more abundantly. Or if you grew up in my church tradition, exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us to him be glory in the church and in Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This word for exceedingly abundantly is the highest form of comparison imaginable in the Greek language. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message paraphrase. He says, God can do anything you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. Or in the words of Dr. Reverend John Jenkins, God can do beyond, beyond. God can do beyond, beyond all that we ask or think or imagine. And this power right now is at work in us so that God would get the glory. Watch this in Christ and in the church. What a wonder. Is the church in Denver given the glory of God? Like a body to a head or a bride to a groom or a flock to a shepherd, the two aren't equal, but they're intricately linked to one another. You won't find one without the other. The church is in Christ, and Christ, oh, I pray to God, is in the church. And God gets the glory from both forever and never. Amen. Amen. Let me ask you as we close, are you intimidated by prayer? If so, I've got good news for you. If you can ask it, God can do it. If you can think it, God can do it. Actually, he can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So my challenge for us this morning, friends, is are you asking and are you thinking? If we're honest, many of us don't feel filled this morning because we're so filled with the wrong things. Good things, but not God things. 
kids' soccer practice, Netflix, video games, online shopping, meetings, good things, but not God things. And maybe we just simply haven't made time to ask or think. Or maybe we're disappointed by all of our unanswered prayer. But brother and sister in Christ, last time I checked, the principle and the priority of prayer wasn't to change God. It was to change us. When was the last time you asked God for something that was so wild, so outrageous, so crazy that only God could possibly do it? When was the last time you meditated on, saturated in, mold over the inexhaustible, irrepressible love of God for you in Christ Jesus? We spend enough time thinking about our problems. Why won't we actually take them to the God who can solve them? This isn't a guilt trip, friends. Just a reminder that all of us, myself included, both hands in the air, are easily distracted and disappointed. And at the end of the day, that's all the enemy's strategy really is. Distract us with lesser things and disappoint us when life doesn't go our way. And I promise you, whether you're a parent, CEO, a student, if your plan this school year, school starts tomorrow for DPS, am I, is, that, is that correct? Um, whew, man, we need extra prayer. At the end, if your plan for this school year is to come to church, get filled up, go to work, pour out, come to church, get filled up, oh, I got to go to this meeting, pour out, come to church, oh man, I hope worship's good today, get filled in, and then pour, you're not going to make it, my friend. You need to live from the overflow, live from abiding, live from the place of love. And so this is an encouragement not to pray as you can't, but pray as you can. Be honest before God. Pray in community with your CG. Uh, We just started these monthly rhythms of community groups just taking 30 minutes once a month, nothing crazy, to pray intercessory prayer for the needs of our world. And then a couple times a year, we gather together. We had one last month that was amazing, a night of prayer and worship where all the community groups come together. Secondly, pray by yourself. As much as we promote living different together, You can be a part of a praying church, but do you pray? You can be part of a worshiping church, but do you worship? You can be part of a church that does justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly with its God, but are you caring for the poor? I don't want us to hide in this because let me tell you, there will come a time where you will need strength in your inner being, where the tidal wave of secular culture will overrun anything that you have. Don't let the devil win. On this way out, on your way out this morning, we have copies of what's called the Daily Examine. It's a super short prayer prompt that you could use, you know, five minutes in the morning before you uh, get to work, maybe five minutes at night, just to reflect and ground yourself in God's love. You don't have to do it every day. I do it once a week on my day off. I, I take time and journal through this prayer, and it's been totally revolutionary to how I engage God and how I remind myself, because I'm so distracted and disappointed, that I am beloved, that God loves me. I'm not asking you to do more, Providence. I'm asking you to do less. I'm asking you to do the one thing that affects everything, and that is to develop a conversational relationship with the Lord who loves you more than you could possibly imagine. God wants you filled to overflow. So much so that he sent his son to be emptied. 
Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, He who was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in the Garden of Gethsemane Jesus' prayer was denied so that we would always be accepted. You can approach the throne of grace with boldness this morning because on the cross, Jesus was forsaken so we would be embraced. He became nothing so that we could be rooted in him. Why would you not ask? Why would you not think? And why would God not grant to do exceedingly abundantly above anything we ask, think, or imagine? I'm going to invite the worship team up this morning as we close. And if this message spoke to you this morning, uh, please come down front. The prayer team will be available. But whatever you do, whether you sit, whether you stand, whether you kneel, whether you sing, whether you shout, I do not care. But let's ask God to fill us afresh with his power, with his love, and with his spirit. Would you stand to your feet with me together as we worship?